Well, welcome again to Carmel Lake Conversations, a uh, wonderful program we have for you this evening. Uh, Francis Harry, uh, my co-host, uh, knows my uh, devotion and affinity to Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, who we will be speaking about this evening. Uh, Francis, I know you also have a, a great affection for her. Um, and uh, we're going to start this evening, as we do each week, uh, with a prayer. But I asked Francis specifically if she would find a prayer uh, from Elizabeth praying to the Blessed Mother. And we'll talk a little bit about the significance of that here in just a moment. But uh, first of all, good evening, Francis. How are you? Good evening. I'm, it's a joy to be here with you and to talk about Blessed Elizabeth. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> There's so much to be said. Well, before we started this series, and I forget back uh, how far back, in fact, uh, when we began, I remember saying, and we talked about this on many occasions, uh, we were going to cover a number of the saints. And, of course, blessed Elizabeth, not yet a saint, but her cause for canonization has been opened. This summer. Uh, this summer. We're very excited about that. Um, I'm going to have to plan something special for whenever this happens. Oh, maybe, yes. Maybe I'll take my wife to France with me. But um, <laughs> going to go in your suitcase? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be wonderful to visit uh, Dijon and uh, the places of her birth and, and where she spent uh, her very short life. I mean, only 26 years uh, old when she died. And we're going to cover all of that. I will say, because we've had, uh, Francis, as you know, some hiccups on the schedule, uh, we're going to cover Elizabeth completely. So certainly the four uh, series programs that we had planned, uh, though we won't get all of those done, and we'll talk about the schedule of the uh, future programs here in a moment. But let's begin with a prayer first. Yes. Um, I picked this one because it is written by Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, and it is um, regarding the Blessed Mother, our Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Virgin Most Faithful, you remain night and day in profound silence, in ineffable peace, in a divine prayer that never ceases, your soul ever inundated with heavenly light. Your heart is like a crystal that reflects the Divine One, the guest who dwells in you, the beauty that knows no setting. O Mary, you draw heaven down to you. See, the Father commits his Son to you that you may be his mother, and this spirit of love overshadows you. The blessed three come to you, and all heaven is opened and abases itself before you. I adore the mystery of this God, who has made flesh in you, O Virgin Mary. Mother of the Word, show me your mystery after the incarnation of the Lord, how you lived buried in adoration. Keep me ever in a divine embrace, let me carry upon me the stamp of this God of love. Amen. Amen. Well, let me say this first. If uh, you want to know how to experience internal, interior peace and joy and relationship with our Lord and Savior, I don't know that there are many better teachers um, of the discipline of doing that, Francis, than Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. I'd have to say that I agree, Mark. Uh, as far as our Carmelites, uh, she's the one I'd go to on that topic for sure. You know, all the saints, especially the saints in Carmel, and that's how we focus our conversation, they all have their 
a unique um, gift, gift <laughs> to, to, to part, uh, impart to us. I think John is the most intellectual. Uh, helps us understand the path uh, from an intellectual standpoint, from a philosophical standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, experiencing uh, this path, this journey towards the Lord. John helps us understand that. Teresa, a master of prayer in all its forms. Teresa is really the master of prayer and and someone who had so much experience and so much wisdom yes. in, in teaching us prayer. Knows the human condition. Yeah. Uh, Teresa, who we just finished, uh, I'm sorry, Therese, Therese, who we just finished, um, you know, so much about our dependence on God and spiritual childhood and regaining that confidence in our Heavenly Father that He will really genuinely take care of everything in our life if we just give it over to right. Him. His great merciful love. Yeah, exactly. But in Elizabeth, in Elizabeth, the saint of silence, I like to refer to her, and I'm not, of course, the only one, nor did I coin that term, but Elizabeth really is the saint of silence. And we're going to talk a lot about silence over the course of the next four uh, programs that we discuss, Elizabeth. There'll be a break sometime in December, but we will do certainly a four- a program series, but Elizabeth is really the saint of silence, and not silence just in the context of uh, the absence of noise, but that interior silence that really leads us to be able to take advantage of what we read in Isaiah about that still, small voice that wants to speak to us. That's what Elizabeth is. Well, I have a couple other titles for you, too. Prophet of the Presence of God and saint of the divine indwelling. So she even has that subtitle. She's not canonized a saint yet, so I think that's a very prophetic statement. Well, and we talked about this a little before we came on the air uh, today. Uh, so say something about that house of God, and I had asked specifically that you find, and each week you find the perfect prayer, but this week I asked specifically that you might find one honoring the Blessed Mother, and uh, ideally you found it from Elizabeth. Uh, talk a little bit about this house of God and why the divine indwelling, that statement, is so important. Well, because we believe the divine indwelling is within us. And if we treat our soul as this temple of this house of God, then we know he's always with us, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. And we can turn to him in a heartbeat. And this turning in, this recollection, recollection is what... Um, Elizabeth is going to help us do. This is part of her mission. You know, St. Augustine said that the Lord is closer to us than our own breath, right? And you're absolutely right. The Blessed Mother is not simply uh, a model of who we are as apostles, though she certainly is that. She is the model of who we are as the temple of our Lord, the temple of the uh, Trinity, and Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity had great affection for the Blessed Mother and appreciated and understood that she genuinely was the temple of the Lord in much the same way the Blessed Mother is. That's why she's our model. That's why we look to the Blessed Mother and have such great devotion for her, because she teaches us what it means to take Christ into our interior, as she did, and then to give him back out to the world. Oh, yes. Very good, Mark. Well, let's begin with this. I think it's important for us to put things in context. And uh, we talked a little bit, I think, about Therese's mission uh, when we went through the series on Therese. Elizabeth had her own mission statement, if you will, uh, came somewhat later in her life. And uh, I just want to read that because I think it's a very good place for us to begin to understand this great future saint 
but nonetheless a great uh, model for us in Carmel. And before you read it, I have yeah. to say to our listeners, I think when we start to, to zero in on the mission, we can also translate that into the gift that we can ask for, yeah. you know? Yeah, and good point, and we're going to come back to the role that Elizabeth can play in our lives. In fact, I'm going to ask you, Francis, if you would read it, because I think we're going to find that a, a feminine voice will get this message across more clearly since it's written by our sister Elizabeth. All right. I think that in heaven, my mission will be to draw souls by helping them to go out of themselves in order to cling to God by a holy and simple loving movement, and to keep them in this great silence within, which will allow God to communicate himself to them and to transform them into himself. So really in this one uh, very simple, uh, straightforward, not simple certainly, but very straightforward three-sentence statement, Elizabeth, or three-line anyway, Elizabeth has given us everything that we need to understand about what it is that she has to give to the church, the gift that she has to give. And there's not only discussion about her canonization, there is discussion uh, about her potentially being raised as a doctor of the church. Of oh, course, I think so, too. Absolutely. We know that we now have 34 doctors of the church. Yeah. John of Avila, who, by the way, if you're not familiar with St. John of Avila, I would encourage you to investigate some of his readings. He was uh, a teacher to both Teresa of Avila to uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, St. John of the Cross was familiar with his works. Uh, St. John of Avila really had a wonderful uh, theology and teaching, and most especially for priests, I think, in large part. That's why the Holy Father elevated him and identified him as a doctor of the Church. And isn't it amazing how these saints kind of flock together? And, of course, we know, um, I don't think we mentioned this, but Elizabeth of the Trinity here she is a contemporary, in a sense, of Therese. They overlap a little bit. Oh, very much so. In fact, Elizabeth read uh, Story of a Soul, yeah. and Therese died, uh, of course, ahead of Elizabeth, but uh, they knew about each other. In fact, uh, uh, Therese writes of having heard about Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, of course, knew Therese quite right. well through her writing. Well, so. and of course, Elizabeth would have uh, read the circular on St. Therese when right. she died. Um, now, just to put a time frame here for our listeners, Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, Trinity was born July 18, 1880, and died November 9, 1906. Mm-hmm. Now, where is Therese's death in that, little Therese, our little flower? She died in 1897. So uh, that's kind of the context that we bring that up in. Right. Uh, so let's go back to her mission statement just quickly and in, in capitalize on a couple of points, which I think will carry through this entire four-part series. Uh, Her mission, she says, is to draw souls by helping them to go out of themselves. This coming out is this idea that John talks about as detachment, leaving behind our memory, our intellect, and everything associated uh, with the will that is not God, essentially, right? Intellect, memory, and will. Um, and this is this coming out that Elizabeth is uh, talking about, wanting us to draw away. But then, ironically, she turns us back around and says, but I want to teach them to cling to God by a holy and simple loving movement. And we know, of course, uh, Francis, that we do that in our interior. So she's saying, come out of the experience of your attachment to your uh, intellect, memory, and will, 
but then turn back and go to the interior. But go there clean. Go there without all this baggage. And that's exactly what she means by silence. She certainly means the practical reality of finding silence, and she talks about solitude as well. But she's really talking about this internal, constant internal dialogue that we all deal with of thoughts and emotions and feelings and judgments and all the rest of that. She's saying we've got to leave that stuff behind and enter into that deep interior silence. So I want to ask, is this, when we read about Blessed Elizabeth and they talk about this double movement, this is what you're talking about, yeah. going out of self and then going into within to mm-hmm. be with God. That's exactly. what we're talking about, the double yeah. movement. Okay, exactly. this is great. I'm yeah. glad to know this. And, and the, the entering into the silence, which, again, we'll spend some time on this, so if it comes off a, a perhaps challenging at first, and it will, um, accept and understand that it's this deep interior silence. And yes, you know, I've used the analogy before, Francis. I don't know that we've talked about it on our program here, but I've used the analogy before, and all of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the sound of music, the, the old uh, mm-hmm. uh, classic. And there's a big uh, uh, scene at the very beginning of that film where they uh, suggest, of course, a bird flying over the mountains. Of course, we know it's done with a helicopter, but you don't hear the sound of the helicopter. All you hear is this sort of silent and the top of the mountain and the snow-capped mountains and it's looking down over the valley and so forth. That is the sound that Elizabeth is saying to us, that's where you must enter in. All of that other stuff has to just go away. And, of course, if we are trying to get silent now without having practiced this very much, as soon as we get quiet and silent, look how loud it is inside. Well, that's a great point. Uh, we So often we seek this silence by trying actively to close off, and we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but we'll close it out in a second. We try to do it by closing out the noise. Elizabeth's going to teach us that's never going to get you there. You have to let the noise happen. Therese taught us this with the, the rosary beads of the, the, of the older sister in the, in the convent. You have to let that noise happen. That noise is there. You can't, you can't fight it because you'll only increase its volume, if you will. Oh. You have to let it go through and accept that in faith, hope, and love, all of that noise will be silenced by God. And, and the judgments and the back and forth and the you know, sort of intellectualizing that we do, all of that has to be silent. Mm, good so point. where does she get this? Let's go back and understand where she gets this. Um, the Carmelite rule, which was very important to uh, Elizabeth, as it was to all of the Carmelites, most especially after the Reform. This is what Teresa took us back to, an understanding of the significance, the spiritual significance of the Carmelite rule. And I encourage our listeners, if you're not familiar, get a copy of the Carmelite rule. It's not a difficult thing to find. Uh, certainly those who are professed Carmelites would have a copy. Uh, but read it and study it and pray over it and remember this line from St. Jer- uh, Albert of Jerusalem. Each one shall remain in his cell or near it, meditating day and night on the law of the Lord and watching in prayer. And what do we mean by this? After the reform, Teresa was telling us, go back to the cell, go back to the interior. Uh, we had lost our way as an order, frankly, in Europe and, and had uh, begun to integrate ourselves perhaps too tightly into uh, society in many ways, and we don't need to go over that. But what Teresa was teaching us with the reform is go back and recapture what we um, began with, which was the entry into that cell and praying day and night. And where do we get that? 
uh, Elizabeth is a great uh, uh, devotee of St. Paul, uh, Paul and, and lived for his writings. And, of course, we know St. Paul teaches us, pray without ceasing, First Thessalonians 5.17. And so, there's another one, uh, idea expressed in the Psalms that goes back to this about uh, reflecting or meditating on the law day and night, and that's the Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Yeah, be still means so much more than just, okay, so I should sit like a rock, Francis? I should just, you know, um, you know, sit in the dark and close the lights and, and not move? And my answer would be, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but look how frenzied we are inside. So yeah. it's that stilling within. That's a good beginning, though. Absolutely, we should do those things. We should do the material things that lead to prayer. I mean, Elizabeth, and we're going to read this in a moment, but Elizabeth is a great advocate of fine stillness. Find silence, find calm, slow down your breathing, slow down your thought patterns. What, what we sometimes mistake in prayer uh, as regards the body and our thoughts and so forth and our emotions and, and all of that is that God gave us, he gifted us the body as well. The body is actually a vehicle through which we can enter prayer, it can assist us at entering prayer. Yeah. Elizabeth understood this very well when she was talking about a silence and solitude, and she doesn't use the word stillness, but that comes to us uh, in, in so much of the um, uh, Eastern uh, Orthodox and, and even in the Carmelites who have a bridge to the Eastern Orthodox. But this idea of stillness in the heart, stillness in the mind, stillness in the thoughts, uh, very uh, pervasive throughout um, Elizabeth's writings. But one other verse that we want to quote, Francis, what is what is and you brought it up actually a little bit earlier. I'm going to oh. ask you to remind us of it. Oh, from Luke 17, the kingdom of God is within you. Yeah, I heard a priest. In fact, I'm sorry, it was not uh, just a priest. The Archbishop this weekend, who happened to uh, be confirming um, the young people at our church this weekend, used this very phrase in terms of his uh, uh, homily on confirmation, and really advocated that we need to understand what that means. There is literally a kingdom of God living within each and every one of us. It really is. It's not just a, a phrase that, that could be easily cast aside. And it is up to us, according to the Archbishop, I'll quote him, it is up to us to develop that kingdom. It is up to us to come in touch with that kingdom. It is up to us to sort of, if you will, build the ramparts and the castles and the valleys. And radiate the glory of the king. Exactly, exactly. And so we have to do that by entering in to that kingdom, and that kingdom is within us. Let's do a little bit of the biographical sketch, Francis, and certainly you're as familiar with this as I am. Um, tell us a little bit about Elizabeth, and you mentioned the dates. Right. Uh, what, what's her background? Well, here she is, born in July 18, 1880. I mentioned that before. She was a military brat. Yes, so for are. all of you military types, uh, you can uh, uh, identify with her. And this was at a military camp in, what is it, Avor? Avor, France. Avor, yeah. France, yes. And um, it is interesting that there is a lot of our uh, saints that have some association with the military. I know in our Carmelites, uh, we just finished uh, uh, celebrating the feast day of St. Ralph Kalinowski, who was also very much involved with the military, and Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, with, who was famous for practicing the presence of God. Um, but they come to understand that this battle uh, is now an internal one. And it's not the engagement of the enemies of the world outwardly, but of the inter interior 
uh, enemies. Yeah, the military discipline and the, and the uh, sort of mindset that you gain in, in exposure to the military, Francis, you were in the military, yes. I was in the military, mm-hmm. and we know what we're talking about. Yes, we you do. Know, there's no such thing, for example, as a 24-hour clock in the military, mm-hmm. right? right? And you could throw out the rules and regulations about when you work and when you don't work. Yeah, so. you're on 24-7. Yeah, those are good um, uh, principles for saints, aspiring saints, to learn. And it's true, so many of the great saints had some military experience, and of course not all, but, but many of them did. And they, they were able to take that experience and translate it into an understanding of what it may mean to enter spiritual battle, right? The weapons are different, the tactics are somewhat different, but uh, nonetheless, the, the idea of sacrifice. And allegiance. Uh, yeah, the idea of, of, of giving yourself for something larger than oh, yourself. Yes. Um, the idea of of uh, devotion to uh, your comrades in arms, if you will, in our case, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, these are principles, though not limited by any means to the military, are certainly well-grounded in the military. And so, It reminds me of a, a saying that I ran across. Uh, this is at Hanscom Air Force Base as you enter on this rock. It says, the motto is, all gave some, all gave some, but some um, gave all. all. Yeah. And, you know, I attributed that to our saints, too. Um, because uh, because they gave this all, they were canonized as saints. We look to them for models for that very reason, mm-hmm. right? And, and um, uh, uh, again, so much of their experience can be attributed to, in many cases, a military background, but not limited in, in, in uh, that way, but uh, certainly uh, an advantage that Elizabeth enjoyed because her father was military, her grandfather was military, and she was around the military a great deal. Right, and so they traveled a lot. But let me talk a little bit more about her early years. I have something else that I have in common with her, that she was a very very much a chatterbox. <laughs> I think I would describe that way as well. Um, and a bit of a little devil. Isn't no, that interesting? No, say it isn't so. <laughs> you know what? She has this in common with the little Therese, the little flower. She was described that way when she was young. Yeah, I think the example given on Elizabeth is a little more uh, adamant. And In fact, it's both her mother, which one of the quotes that we uh, uh, happen to reference is from, uh, but there was also her confessor, uh, the, the her. priest for whom she received instruction for her first confession. Yeah, what did she? What did he say about he her? Said, Do you remember? Elizabeth Cates, by the way, was her name. Elizabeth Cates. That little girl will either be a devil or a saint. There's <laughs> no middle ground for her. You know, it gives parents hope that if you have a child that has a bit of a temper, that is, you know, really um, strong-willed. Maybe you've got a saint in the making. But there's nothing wrong with strong will. It just has to be directed, right? In fact, we've <laughs> yes. talked so many times about uh, people who may have led a very difficult, very challenging, uh, uh, somewhat off-course life. Uh, those are sometimes the very people that, that the Lord picks out and says, no, let me take that energy and that drive and that willpower and direct it properly, and I think we can create a saint here. Well, let me tell you about one of her fits of rage, okay? Um, this was at Christmas, so all of your parents, you, you know those, those stories about your kids when they're babies. I've got one myself, but let me share you this one on Blessed Elizabeth. Um, she has a baby doll named Jeanette, whom she loved. In fact, she was even, even teaching her baby doll, Jeanette, how to pray. And she would be going up to Mass in the offertory procession and, you know, blowing kisses. And I'm like, ooh, that's like Therese, too, blowing kisses at the crucifix before even getting up there. But anyway, there was this one time at Christmas when um, they took her doll, Jeanette, and they dressed her up differently, you know, to use as the Christ child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they were hoping she wouldn't recognize her. But she 
did. And guess what she says? Jeanette, give me back my Jeanette, you know? Right in the middle of the uh, service. Yes. Yeah. She runs yes. up out of the pew and onto the altar and grabs the Christ child yes. out of the uh, the crib and uh, and uh, storms away with her. Yeah. So, yeah. This reminds me of my son because um, when he was just a baby, uh, and he wasn't trouble at Mass, but this one Mass, it was Easter Sunday, and the priest is given a homily about the resurrection and rolling away the stone, and he just got to the part about rolling away the stone. And then my son just yelled, shrieked really loud. I mean, I've never heard him shriek so loud, and it echoed throughout the church, and there was a deathly silence afterwards. And the priest looked around, and he says, yeah, they probably felt just about like that. <laughs> and, and then he said, I can't remember the rest of my homily. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. But at the same point, I don't. I bet you everybody remember that homily. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Your son's on the way to sainthood. All you have to do is direct it. <laughs> May blessed Elizabeth intercede yeah. with her Jeanette. Well, um, we, um, uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to have to turn to a uh, some of the challenges in Elizabeth's young life. Of course, we're, we're coming up on a break, but I do want to just share, uh, she did experience some difficulty in her very early life, some tragedy. We'll touch upon that only quickly, because it does help us understand uh, the formation of her spirituality that develops very quickly in this young girl, and we'll touch on that when we come back. Again, as a reminder, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home.
to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We were talking about Elizabeth of the Trinity, Elizabeth Cattez, at this point of her life, because she has not actually entered Carmel, Francis. Uh, we know it'll be sometime before she does it. And what we wanted to do was just sort of sketch out some of the details of her life, because some of the events of her early life, I think, are instructive um, uh, of who she became and the way that she approached her prayer life and the way that she approached the Lord. So let's start with an un- un- unfortunate tragedy in her early life. In the course of about nine months, uh, Elizabeth Cattez lost both her grandfather, who was a military man, this was her mother's father, and her own father, who unfortunately died in Elizabeth's arms. Uh, yeah, and she's only seven years old. Can you imagine yeah. what that would be like and the impact that would make um on the soul of Elizabeth. Yeah, and she was devoted to her father. She was her father's uh, spirit in many ways. He was a strong-willed person as well, and she, of course, adopted that spirit, uh, was gifted with that spirit, and so it no doubt was a very difficult thing for her. And when this happened, the family moved from what had been some fairly uh, comfortable surroundings to um, more simple uh, lifestyle. They never struggled financially. They did have, uh, uh, Mrs. Cortez had a pension, so they had uh, a good lifestyle, but they moved across town, basically in Dijon, to um, a uh, apartment where there was a Carmel Providentially. Yeah, the Carmel of Dijon was right next door. Yes, and she, from her balcony, she could look into the garden. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And there's one other thing, uh, Francis, as it turns out, that you have in common with uh, Elizabeth, and I think this is very significant. In addition to experiencing this tragedy of her father's own death in her early life, um, she was very much, I think, affected by her early interest in music. And she was enrolled in the conservatory in Dijon to study music for what was expected to be a future career as a music teacher. Right. Her mother wanted to make sure that she would have a way to have uh, a livelihood. And being a teacher of music was something that she had in mind. Um, now, Elizabeth was very accomplished and would practice maybe up to four hours a day, as most piano students do. And she was quite good. Well, I don't know. My kids have taken piano. I don't know that they practice four hours a day. Well, if you're going to win those kind of competitions, you are. Yeah. And, and she uh, won, some, won some grand prizes, and she was very, very good. And I think that this is very uh, critical to understand about a musician, especially one who's practicing four hours a day, the amount of concentration the amount of finesse, the amount of discipline, the amount of uh, being able to get out of yourself and into the music. I think that this is critical in understanding how this is going to develop her prayer because you're so involved into the uh, emotions, well, especially uh, the romantic composers that she was playing, and uh, it takes you into another place. And, you know, if you transition that into your soul, uh, then it's easy for me as a musician to understand how this really complemented her great prayer life. You know, it's another wonderful example, and there are going to be a couple of them in Elizabeth's life as we go through it, but it's a wonderful example of how the Lord can use whatever is in our life, whatever is in our experience. Now, in fairness, Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity had a devotion to our Lord at a very early life, I mean, a very early stage of her life. This isn't true for all of us, but it doesn't matter. The point remains, and in fact may be enhanced, 
that the Lord can reach back and use every aspect of our life, it's good and it's bad, to help draw us to him. I remember a good friend of ours, Father Daniel Chowning, a Carmelite priest, explained to me one time his impression that Elizabeth's ability to listen with such intensity to the subtleties of the music that she was asked to play and the complexity of some of the the Chopin pieces, for example, um, taught her the value of listening. It taught her to be able to go into, as you said so well, go into the music and really listen. And, you know, there's a level of intensity. We're going to talk about her intensity again in a moment, but there's a level of intensity that Elizabeth brought to everything that she did four hours a day of practicing piano, um, certainly as regards her prayer life. And we can learn from that our own deficiencies at times in being able to enter into our prayer life with real intensity. And it doesn't mean, you know, sort of a muscular tension, grunting sort of thing, but, but entering in, in our heart and in our mind very deeply to the experience. I'll ask the question, and certainly of our listeners, uh, it's on a very personal level. I ask myself this oftentimes. If I'm sitting in a daily Mass, I'll sometimes catch myself up and say, am I really entering into the Mass? Did I remember what the reading was? Am I thinking about its application? Am I listening to what the priest is saying right now? Do I realize that the body of Christ, my Lord and Savior, is being elevated in front Mm -hmm. of me right now? Elizabeth Wood? Yes, it's that single eye focus and that awareness uh, that is so keen here. And on top of that, um, you know, as a musician, uh, she would have memorized lots and lots of music. So this memory of hers is phenomenal. And, of course, as you apply that to her learning about the Carmelite saints and especially her study of Scripture, she loved St. Paul, and how, you know, she just exudes Scripture in her writings. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think the lesson is we need to be careful as um, as we enter into this silence and this intimacy with the Lord. Let's not just automatically leave behind the things the Lord may have gifted us with throughout our life, whether it's artistic in nature and music and poetry, um, athletics, or whatever it is. Um, the Lord can help us use that to, to enter into that relationship. Let's, uh, let's go back, though, and discuss just quickly these little uh, fits of temper that uh, our dear uh, Elizabeth is still subject to, of course, she's still a relatively young girl, um, and she's still subject to these little rages. But again, uh, the point is, and she writes about this, the point is sometimes that very deficiency, and she recognized it as a fault, is the very thing the Lord might use to draw us into closer relationship with him. Good point. Well, let's see what she has to say about it. And this is from her early diaries, actually. Long before she enters Carmel, she says, Today, I had the joy of offering to Jesus several sacrifices where my dominant fault, this is her temper, was concerned. But they cost me a lot, she says. It makes me realize how weak I am. I feel that when I am criticized unjustly, my blood boils in my veins and my whole being is in revolt. But Jesus was with me. I listened to his voice deep within me, she says. This is a relatively young girl still. And I was ready to put up with anything for the love of him. Amazing. There's hope for us. <laughs> there is hope for us. <laughs> Even all the hot-tempered ones of us. <laughs> well, and what I liked about this particular quote from her diary is she says, you know, where my dominant fault was concerned. And it made me remember immediately Second Corinthians 11.30, where Paul says, If I must boast, 
I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, in Elizabeth, that's temper. Uh, we don't know, but we can speculate what that may have been for Paul. But uh, in addition to the trials that he underwent, um, we have to consider that our weaknesses, the things that we acknowledge as our deficiencies, and Elizabeth acknowledged it, right. may be the very thing that the Lord uses to draw us into a d- deeper relationship with him. And I might add that she also used the sacrament of penance, reconciliation, to help her overcome this. This was an important part here as well. Yeah, so let's talk um, again in her early years, age 11, she experiences or has her first uh, communion. Um, and she says something very profound to a friend of hers as they're leaving the church, uh, in fact, and they're going to what typically would be a post-communion celebration. Uh, she has a very remarkable quote there. Yeah, she says, I'm not hungry. Jesus has fed me. Now, this is a girl at age 11, by the way. This is when she made her uh, first communion, age 11. And this is the statement that she has. This is clearly um, the, uh, if you will, the reflection of a very uh, mature soul uh, in relationship with the Lord, somebody who's already begun to uh, reflect and and, uh, understand the relationship that we have with the Lord. Well, on that same evening of her First Communion, she goes to visit Marie of Jesus, the Mother Prioress of the Dijon Carmel, and the Mother Prioress gave her a great gift to ponder by explaining to her what her name meant. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, in Hebrew, Elizabeth means house of God. Mm, providential. From, yeah, from the moment that she heard that, she she was very taken by it, and she began uh, in, in her diaries and in other forms, we, we understand that she had begun to, uh, she would jot that down. She would write that, for example, in her diary, and uh, she would uh, make reference to it in letters to other people. Uh, so we know that it had affected her very uh, significantly. But we also know that around age 13, she begins to think quite seriously about entering Carmel. Uh, she has expressed this to her mother. She's expressed it to uh, the parish priest uh, uh, at the time who she would have uh, uh, gone to for confession. And she begins to experience, uh, at about that time, a bout of scruples. And uh, Francis, tell us a little bit about scruples. Explain to us. Well, you just question everything, and, and everything is a sin, and was that a sin, and did I do that right? And, you know, it's just complicated and multiplied, and it gets you kind of in a spiritual frenzy, I think. Yeah, and, of course, this is a time in France where um, some of our listeners may be familiar that Jansenist mindset was still very pervasive, even though it had been condemned a number of years before. You tell what that is. A very a judgmental perspective on our relationship with the Lord, watching every sin, God is a is a, um, uh, not an angry God, but a very just God, and he focuses on the rules, if you will. This sort of mindset and, and uh, um, idea was very pervasive in right. France at the time. And it led someone who had a particularly high degree of uh, sensitivity in Elizabeth and a desire to um, pursue a life of holiness. It led her to begin to question and mm-hmm. scrutinize herself. Of course, not an unhealthy thing unless it uh, gets uh, you know out of hand, but uh, for her, it had become about with scruples, and her confessor helped her to get back on course and realize um, that yes, God is a just God, but He's a loving God. And isn't it inter- interesting that Therese, the little flower, also had about a scruples about this age, and of course, Therese is going to emphasize the loving mercy of a loving father. Um, so uh, I, I think that Elizabeth keys in on this as well. 
Well, just about a year later, now at around age 14, and again, her desire to enter Carmel has been made clear. Uh, her mother actually uh, discourages it initially. In fact, even tells her she can't go visit right. the Carmel anymore. He does not want her to become a Carmelite nun. He wants her to get married and have a family. Yeah, and of course, uh, Madame Cortez is looking for some stability in her daughter's life. This is her oldest daughter, her first daughter. Uh, she wasn't against, uh, of course, by any means. She herself was a very devoted Catholic. Loved uh, Teresa of Avila. Exactly. Had her yeah. books That's and right. read them. Yeah, so so uh, the ideas of karma were certainly uh, well-known throughout the Cortez household. Uh, but Madame Cortez was uh, concerned that Elizabeth would be expressing this interest at such a young age. Well, uh, also now, at age 14... She begins to have a great desire to consecrate herself and her virginity uh, to Christ. And it's at this time that she begins to uh, pursue that inner voice, inner prayer. Now, this is age 14. What a remarkable thing. Don't we wish we'd had that sort of insight, Francis, at age 14? And I was commenting to you earlier that here her father dies when she's 7. And now from 7 to 14, she's developing in her prayer. She's going through these tragedies, these um, scruples. And now at 14, she feels the call to Carmel. And it's going to be another seven years for her to live out this Carmelite vocation, but in the world. So she's a, a superb example for secular Carmelites who are in the world of, of how to live the Carmelite vocation in the world. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And, you know, for so many of us who uh, I know um, I've heard people say, over time, well, gee, I should have been a priest, or I really should have entered religious life, and you know, now, you know, it's it's that's not an option for me. Well, that's not the direction that the Lord called you, but nonetheless, uh, this great lay person now, before she becomes a Carmelite, is teaching us what it really means to be in Carmel. And in fact, Elizabeth is quoted as saying. Um, that she lived in Carmel before she ever lived in Carmel. Yes, she was able to do that. She went into the interior cell of her soul. And, you know, I, I, I want our listeners to be assured that uh, Elizabeth was very much in the world, but not of the world. I mean, she loved to party. She loved to go to dances. She had several men propose and ask for a hand in marriage. Uh, she loved to dress fashionably. She was very good at educating young children in the Catholic faith and coming up with recreational activities for them. She's very fun-loving. They, they um, went on very um, uh, extravagant, if you will, vacations. We might yeah. think them extravagant today, of course. Well-traveled. Uh, yeah, she was well-traveled to the south of France and so forth. So but she certainly didn't live a sheltered life. This no. is a young woman who had a very full life, a very rich life, a very uh, multifaceted life. Uh, and yet, uh, all along the way... Uh, through these years, she hears that interior voice. And in fact, she says later in her writings, I heard the voice and it said one word, Carmel. Yeah. She knew where her call was. Of course, she had the advantage of being exposed to uh, the sisters who lived right next to her. Uh, so she had begun to hear uh, this interior voice. And we need to say something about this interior voice of Francis. In fact, uh, I want to read again from the, uh, the Carmelite rule something that Elizabeth later would say when she was making her profession and was asked, as all young Carmelites are, um, what is the, 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 you know, your favorite uh, part of the rule? And this was her response. Her response, of course, was uh, silence, but this is the fuller response from uh, the actual uh, rule itself. The apostle recommends silence. And, of course, uh, uh, St. Albert is referring to St. Paul here. 
since he commands us to observe it while working. And as the prophet testifies, silence is the, ser- is the service of justice. And again, in silence and hope shall be your strength. Elizabeth loved that line. She lived with that line um, long before she entered Carmel. She knew it. I mean, she didn't. She didn't. She couldn't quote that from the uh, from the rule. But she knew this idea of silence. And in fact, even in the midst of her busy life and her very uh, active life, Francis, we know uh, from her letters and from her diary, oftentimes she would want to steal away. She would look for solitude. She would look to be alone uh, as often as she could, so she could enter. Uh, into that silence, which was very important for her spiritual growth, even at this stage of her life. Well, you know, I I have to stop and interrupt here with uh, something that she says about this secret to sanctity, um, because this is this entering in. She says, let us live with God as with a friend. Let us make our faith a living thing, so as to remain in communion with him through everything. That is how saints are made. We carry our heaven within us, since he who completely satisfies every longing of the glorified souls in the light of the beatific vision is giving himself to us in faith and mystery. It is the same thing. It seems to me I've found my heaven on earth, since heaven is God and God is in my soul. The the day I understood that, everything became clear to me, and I wish I could whisper this secret to those I love in order that they may also cling closely to God through everything. Yeah, she was really um, adamant about, if you look at her letters, some, uh, I forget the exact count, but I, I saw it earlier today, something approaching 300 letters that she wrote in the very short time she was in Carmel. And all of her letters are filled with her effort to share her own experience with her mother, with her sisters, with her aunts, um, with other religious that she knows. She's very committed. Uh, you know, Elizabeth never desired to be a missionary like Therese. She wasn't a great evangelist by any means. But yet here we are talking about her in the year mm-hmm. uh, 2011, almost 2012. She died in 1906, uh, uh, and yet uh, here we are still talking about her writings. She's being contemplated as uh, a candidate for canonization and probably elevation to the doctor of the church as a doctor of the church. Her writings are very deep, very profound. Even her letters, although uh, written in very casual form, they express great truths, great uh, depth of wisdom and understanding about the importance of the interior life, the life that we're all called to, that life of intimacy with our Lord, which is only found in this silence that we must work to create a little bit for ourselves. And Elizabeth has some advice for us on this. Before we pick up uh, with the story of her life, which we will at around age sixteen, seventeen, I just want to read this reflection that she offers us, because again, this is from her diary. This is prior to her entering Carmel. Before meditation, she says, recollect yourself. Then read slowly, savoring every word, letting them sink into the soul. Read over again those passages that strike one with the strike one the most. But never read for curiosity. Make a resolution. This is very important. For meditation without a resolution is three-quarters wasted, she says. Mm. Then, never give up in prayer. Even if you only have two minutes, provide those two minutes to the Lord. She's, mm-hmm. she's adamant about the time that needs to be spent in prayer. And she's adamant that we not just 
sort of slam the door and, you know, flop down and spend a few minutes in conversation, but really prayerfully, uh, actively prepare ourselves and, and slowly, uh, as uh, St. Teresa taught us, slowly chew on those words, whether it's the gospel, the rule, or any other number of uh, devotionals that St. Elizabeth or Elizabeth of the Trinity would have used. Like our Blessed Mother, the Virgin Mary, who pondered, you know, uh, pondered these things in her heart. So, oh, we can all do that, too. That's all doable. Well, let's talk about this 16- or 17-year-old now who's um, successfully um, completed her studies in music and really at this stage of her life should go on to Paris uh, to study, uh, to um, uh, become a teacher, uh, but decides that she's going to stay in uh, Dijon another couple of years and continue studying harmony at the conservatory until finally she makes clear to her mother at age 19, this is it, I want to enter Carmel. And what does her mother say, mm-hmm. Francis? Um, no, I really don't want you to go, but okay, just wait till at least you're 21, all right? So, and, and that's what she does. She delays until she's 21. Yeah, and again, this is where uh, deference to her mother sort of wins out, and she realizes her mother, of course, had uh, suffered a great deal in her life, the loss of her husband. She'd had a number of uh, physical challenges. Yeah, didn't she have a facial something, a problem there, so that she wasn't maybe feeling like she'd be attracted to be re-wed, and, you know, she needed to be looked after, too, so uh, there was a lot underlying all of that. But I think it's amazing here where um, Blessed Elizabeth does the Thy will be done right here, you know, instead of my will, thy will. Yeah, even here she's beginning to practice it. She's already beginning to understand uh, that she's going to have to overcome her own desire, in this case in deference to her mother, uh, who who asks that she, no, wait, just delay, give it some time. Um, and, and I want to, uh, and Francis, if you would, I'd like to have you read this quote where she talks about, again, this is from her diary, but she's talking about what she wants her life to be. Now, this is, again, a fairly young uh, a girl uh, expressing what, at this stage of her life, she's already discerned she wants her life to be. Of course, it's to enter Carmel, but even beyond that. So she gets this idea from Catherine of Siena to interiorize her cell within, and this is what Blessed Elizabeth says. May my life be a continual prayer, a long act of love. May nothing distract me from you, neither noise nor diversion. Oh, my master, I would so love to live with you in silence. But what I love above all is to do your will. And since you want me to still remain in the world, I submit with all my heart for love of you. I offer you the cell of my heart. May it be your little Bethany. Come rest there. I love you so. I would like to console you, and I offer myself to you as a victim, oh, my master, for you, with you. Well, that's wonderful uh, insight into what this young person had already begun to discern about her own life and what she wanted her life to be. You know, I want to point out something else, and we're, we're running out of time, unfortunately, and I do want to get a final prayer in, but... There's something else very important about Elizabeth. It's true with Therese, and it was true with Teresa. I think it's true with all of our Carmelite saints, Edith Stein, uh, Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, um, who in their time, and I read this actually from the Holy Father uh, the other day, in their time were able to take these timeless principles 
uh, and apply them to the circumstances, not only of their own life, but of the events that were swirling around them. Teresa needed to reform the order because it had lost its way in a dis, uh, disjointed Europe. Uh, John contributed to that. Um, Therese, competing against Jansenism and Nietzsche and all of what was going on at her time. Uh, Elizabeth, needing to help people enter back into science, and Teresa Benedicta of the Cross Course World War II. These timeless principles by our saints have allowed us to deal with the circumstances in the time that they found themselves by drawing us back in every case to the center, to our silence, and to an intimate relationship with our Lord. That's a, a very significant principle, not just for Elizabeth, of course, but for all Carmelites. But we're going to talk at length over the next many weeks about uh, how she helps us do that. But if you would, Francis, could you please close us in prayer? Yes, this is from Blessed Elizabeth of Trinity to the Blessed Mother. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O faithful virgin, when you uttered your fiat, the greatest of all mysteries was accomplished in you. In what peace and recollection did you live and act? Teach me to sanctify my most trivial actions and to spend myself for others when charity requires it, yet all the while to remain like you, the constant adorer of God within me. Amen. Well, amen, and thank you, uh, Francis. Thank you. I appreciate that. I said there would be just a quick uh, synopsis of the uh, calendar going forward, and we will be uh, doing, I think, two more programs in November, Francis. And then um, we'll likely be taking most of December off because, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, we'll be doing uh, the rest of Elizabeth in December and then taking January off because we'll be doing a prayer retreat. Francis and I, uh, if she's available, we'll be doing a prayer retreat here locally. And so we won't be on the radio in January. So what we don't finish finishes of, of Elizabeth in November and December, we will pick up when we come back in, in uh, February. And we invite you to go to uh, www.radiomaria.us to the archived conversations of Carmelite conversations. Right. Don't miss any. If you can pick up on some of what we've done with St. John of the Cross, Therese, Teresa, we invite you and encourage you to please uh, uh, go and, and listen to those archived uh, uh, programs as well. Well, again, thank you for joining us here at Carmelite Conversations. It's been a pleasure and a blessing for us to be with you. It's been a pleasure to be on Radio Maria. And we want to wish you a very blessed, grace-filled Thanksgiving. God bless you all.